Hello, and welcome to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I am your host, Mr. Miller. This podcast will cover a number of topics that happened on this date in history. Please visit the podcast webpage at thishappentoday.buzzsprout.com. There you can download the notes page, which will help you organize the information, as well as develop your own ideas on how these events change the world around us. If you're interested in hearing more, please consider subscribing so you will not miss out on what happens tomorrow in history. Today is June 29th. On June 29th of 1956, President Dwight Eisenhower signed the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956. The bill created a 41,000-mile national system of interstate and defense highways that would, according to Eisenhower, eliminate unsafe roads, inefficient routes, traffic jams, and all of the other things that got in the way of speedy, safe, transcontinental travel. At the same time, highway advocates argued, in case of atomic attack on our key cities, the road net would permit quick evacuation of target areas. For all those reasons, the 1956 law declared that the construction of an elaborate expressway system was essential to the national interest. Today, there are more than 250 million cars and trucks in the United States, or almost one per person. At the end of the 19th century, by contrast, there was just one motorized vehicle on the road for every 18,000 Americans. At the same time, most of these roads were, not, were made not of asphalt or concrete, but of packed dirt on good days or mud. Under these conditions, driving a motor car was not simply a way to get from one place to another. It was an adventure. Outside cities and towns, there were almost no gas stations or even street signs. And rest stops were unheard of. Automobiling, said the Brooklyn Eagle newspaper in 1910, was the last call of the wild. That was about to change. In 1908, Henry Ford introduced the Model T, a dependable, affordable car that soon found its way into many American garages. By 1927, the year that Ford stopped making this Tin Lizzie, the company had sold nearly 15 million of them. At the same time, Ford's competitors had followed its lead and begun building cars for everyday people. Automobiling was no longer an adventure or a luxury, it was a necessity. A nation of drivers needed good roads, but building good roads was expensive, and who would pay the bill? In most cities and towns, mass transit, streetcars, subways, elevated trains was not truly public transportation. Instead, it was usually built and operated by private companies that made enormous infrastructural investments in exchange for long-term profits. However, automobile interests such as car companies, tire manufacturers, gas station owners, and suburban developers hoped to convince state and local governments that roads were a public concern. That way, they could get the infrastructure they needed without spending any of their own money. Their campaign was successful. In many places, elected officials agreed to use taxpayer money for the improvement and construction of roads. In most cases, before 1956, the federal government split the cost of road building with the states. One exception was the New Deal. When federal agencies like Public Works Administration and the Works Progress Administration put people to work building bridges and parkways. However, this funding arrangement did not get roads built fast enough to please most ardent highway advocates. Among these was a man who had become president, Army General Dwight D. Eisenhower. During World War II, Eisenhower had been stationed in Germany when he had been impressed by the network of high-speed roads known as the Roche Autobahn, which he became president in 1953. Eisenhower was determined to build the highways that lawmakers had been talking about for years. For instance, the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1944 had authorized the construction of a 40,000-mile national system of interstate highways. Though through and between the nation's cities, but offered no way to pay for it. 
It took several years of wrangling, but a new Federal Aid Highway Act passed in 1956. The law authorized the construction of the 41,000-mile network of interstate highways that would span the nation. It also allocated $26 billion to pay for them. Under the terms of the law, the federal government would pay 90% of the cost of the expressway construction. The money came from an increased gasoline tax, now $0.03 per gallon instead of 2 that went into non-divertible highway trust fund. The new interstate highways were controlled access expressways with no at-grade crossings. That is, they had overpasses and underpasses instead of intersections. They were at least four lanes wide and were designed for high-speed driving. They were intended to serve several purposes. Eliminate traffic congestion. Replace what one highway advocate called undesirable slum areas with pristine ribbons of concrete make coast-to-coast -coast transportation more efficient, and make it easier to get out of big cities in the case of an atomic attack. When the Interstate Highway Act was first passed, most Americans supported it. Soon, however, the unpleasant consequences of all that road building began to show. Most unpleasant of all was the damage the roads were inflicting on the city neighborhoods in their path. They displaced people from their homes, sliced communities in half, and led to abandonment and decay in city after city. People began to fight back. The first victory in the anti-road forces took place in San Francisco, where in 1959, the Board of Supervisors stopped the construction of the double-decker Embicardo Freeway along the waterfront. During the 1960s, activists in New York City, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., New Orleans, and other cities managed to prevent road builders from eviscerating their neighborhoods. As a result, numerous urban interstates end abruptly. Activists called these roads the roads to nowhere. In many cities and suburbs, however, the highways were built as planned. All told, the interstate highway system is more than 46,000 miles long. And then in 1995, the Space Shuttle Atlantis was making history. During the 100th flight of American astronauts, it was about to dock with a mere Russian space station, Atlantis. Houston, Atlantis, were stopped about 30 feet station keeping point. Flight director, good news. Links between the two space programs have been growing for several years. Another shuttle had flown around Mir earlier in 1995, and the astronaut Norm Thargard had launched to Mir aboard a Russian capsule. Atlantis was going to make the first docking with the station. It would pick up Thagard and two cosmonauts and deliver two other cosmonauts to the station. That set the stage for Commander Hoot Gibson to bring the ships together. At Houston, Atlantis, we have capture. Capcom, copy capture. Atlantis, Houston, we think it's time to open the hatch. We're going to proceed if you agree. Capcom, Hoot, we concur, you're go to open the shuttle hatch. And moments later, Gibson and Mir Commander Vladimir Dezirov embraced in the airlock. Atlantis spent five days docked to the station. The two crews conducted a set of medical tests in a laboratory above the aboard the shuttle. In all, shuttles visited Mir ten times before the station was plunged to Earth in 2001, and six more astronauts lived there. They conducted experiments and gained experience at living in space for months at a time, and they survived a fire and a collision with a supply ship, making history on a Russian space station. And then finally, in 2007, Steve Jobs and perhaps his most iconic Apple keynote introduced the original Apple iPhone, an iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod and a phone. Are you getting it? It was January 9th, 2007. Night at the Museum was number one in theaters. Nokia was the big name in phones. 
President Gerald Ford had been buried days earlier, and in a wild-card playoff game, the Indianapolis Coats had just defeated the Kansas City Chiefs before going on to win the Super Bowl. iPhone is a revolutionary and magical product that is literally five years ahead of any other mobile phone, Jobs said during his keynote speech. The iPhone wasn't actually magical. There were even behind-the-scenes efforts required to keep the phone from crashing while Jobs demonstrated it during the keynote. But 15 years later, it would be hard to argue the iPhone wasn't revolutionary. Whether you're a loyal iPhone owner or never owned one, the impact of the iPhone has made our lives indisputable. To celebrate the 15th anniversary, years ago, of the iPhone's unveiling, here are 15 facts about the iPhone and Apple. In 2007, Apple's market capitalization, the total value of all shares of Apple stock, was $174.03 billion. In January of 2022, it hit $3 trillion, the highest market capitalization for any company ever. The original iPhone came with a silver-brushed aluminum finish. The current iPhone 13 has aluminum frame, glass front and back, and comes in five colors. The iPhone 13 Pro is available in three finishes. The original iPhone cost $499 and came with 4GB of storage. For $100 more, you could get one with 8GB of storage. The iPhone 13 Pro Max costs $1,099 for 256GB of storage and tops out at 1TB of storage for $1,599. The following companies did not exist in 2007. Instagram, Uber, TikTok, Twitch, Snap, Lyft, DoorDash, Tinder, Slack, Lime, Postmates, Venmo, and Pinterest. The original iPhone had a single camera and it was located on the back. The iPhone 13 has, Pro has four cameras, three on the back and one on the front. You could not copy and paste with the original iPhone. In fact, copy and paste wasn't added until 2009 in the release of iPhone OS 3. The original iPhone had 15 apps, calendar, camera, clock, contacts, iPod, maps, kind of like Google Maps, messages, notes, Phone, photos, safari, stocks, voice memos, weather, and settings. There have been 33 iPhone models, and Apple currently sells 8. Number 9, you couldn't record videos with the original iPhone. Now the iPhone 13 Pro can record 4K 60fps video and can even record in ProRes at 4K 30fps. Number 10, the following movies were filmed with an iPhone. Unsane, Tangerine, Detour, High Flying Bird, Snow Steam Iron, and Lady Gaga's Stupid Love, which is technically a music video. Number 11, the original iPhone didn't support MMS for sending things like photos and videos via text message. It was added as part of iPhone OS 3. Number 12, the original iPhone had a 3.5 inch screen. The iPhone 13 mini has a 5.4 inch screen, and the iPhone 13 comes with a 6.1 inch screen, and the Pro Max has a giant 6.7 inch screen. 13. FaceTime was released in 2010 and iMessage in 2011. In number 14, the App Store opened on July 10th of 2008 with 500 apps. According to Apple's website, there are currently 1.8 million apps in the App Store. Number 15, on September 10, 2007, 74 days after the launch of the original iPhone, Apple sold its millionth iPhone. In 2018, Apple sold 216.7 million iPhones, which is roughly a million iPhones sold every one and a half days. 
Apple stopped sharing the number of iPhones sold after 2018. You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics. ThePeopleHistory.com The Federal Aid Highway Act at History.com The Shuttle Atlantis Docks with Russian Mirror at Stardate.org and Apple iPhone released at CNET.com. The music used as the background track for this podcast is Americana, created by Kevin McLeod on Incompetech.com. If you enjoyed this information and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, as this will keep the historical events in your feed in the morning for each day. I hope you have a great day.